to a special episode of the Irish NFL show. By now, you should know me after three and a bit years. I'm Colm Cronin and delighted today to be joined by a very special guest. She is an NFL writer and podcaster for Archer Football, has been covering the NFC West and the AFC West for 11 seasons, is a member of the Pro Football Writers Association and a contributor for Real Hawk Talk and Endzone Scoop. Very welcome to the show, Dana Gorman. How are you doing? I am very well. I'm excited to be here with you today. Thanks for asking. Well, given the name, I think the first thing I have to ask is, do you have Irish heritage? Have you ever been to this little green island, Dana? Um, I am very, very Irish in my family. The funny thing is that is my husband's name, um, you know, is O'Gorman, but he hardly has any Irish heritage. So I just lucked into it. But yes, my family is very, very Irish. We're just about, I think we're just at three generations out from Ireland. So we, it's, it's, it's a huge part of who I am. But I've not ever been until this coming summer. We are doing a full week in Ireland this upcoming summer. And I'm so excited. Excellent. Well, uh, I hope uh, that will be a, a fantastic trip. Um, but in, I guess usually uh, what you have been covering is we've gone into the, you know, the, the Western conferences, but particularly a team who had a really interesting year, and that's the Seattle Seahawks. And I mean, I, I don't even know exactly where, where we start, um, but but um, may, maybe maybe let's go back in terms, even potentially in terms of, of the, the Russ trade, right? Because mm-hmm. that had kind of started the, the, the Russ talk had started the year before. He'd gone on the Dan Patrick show. He kind of made things kind of clear. But even before that happened, you'd had, I suppose, a number of years of talk about how um, geriatric Pete Carroll was holding Russell Wilson back and if only Russell was allowed to be the CEO of the offense, everything would be great. So I'm wondering in terms of when when it happened, mm-hmm. it, like it, it, it did kind of kind of come out of the blue that it was that it was Denver because it happened so suddenly and the focus had been on Aaron Rodgers. But were you surprised when, when it happened or was this inevitable? I think both are true. I think it was definitely inevitable. And yet I didn't expect it to happen in the 22 season. I really thought it would be the 23 season. Um, if you looked at his contract, that seemed to make a little bit more sense. Um, and, and going into kind of a, a new generation. I really thought it would be one more full season of drama. To be quite honest with you, I, I was, when I read the news, I literally put my head down on my desk because I was, it's kind of a gut punch, right? It's like Russell Wilson had been our quarterback for 10 years at that point, and he was just so ingrained. And yet the writing had been on the wall for a long time. You were absolutely correct. You know, there had been the leaks about the Chicago trade and that he would do these four teams. And even before that, he was threatening to leave unless they hired his offensive coordinator that he wanted and this sort of thing. So you knew the turmoil was definitely there, but to see it in black and white in front of you was a little bit shocking. And it took me no time at all to really be okay with it because I didn't want in another season of the news cycle of Russ is unhappy, you know, Pete is terrible, that that we had been hearing for so long. So when I saw the compensation, I was real okay with it at that point because Denver gave up so much for him. But then pretty quickly too, you settle in of, well, now what do we do? You know, that that definitely came into play. And I suppose just kind of like building on, on the Russ stuff because 
it the way it played out over the course of the season, look, obviously in terms of Russ's performance, but there, and, and I think this is where it, to me, it became interesting because I had heard people like Mike Sando kind of bring up time and time again, like, you know, there was honestly this huge hullabaloo and I'm a, I'm a Broncos fan and Broncos country was absolutely delighted. But Sando kind of kept saying, there are issues here. I don't know if the Broncos know what they're getting into, and especially with a, a rookie head coach. But and even now, people are kind of saying that, you know, oh, this this is a blip and putting it all on Hackett. And oh, it's only this it's only one person in, in Seattle. It's only Richard Sherman who has an issue with him. But it's not just Richard Sherman. We saw numerous Seahawks take mm-hmm. shots. We saw Doug Baldwin, a guy who's usually reticent to take shots. He kind of took shots. Um, Pete uh, um, took a couple of shots around the the wristband, and even when Marshawn went on Richard Sherman's podcast, and in fairness, did a job in terms of he he was I I think trying to stick up for Russ a little when, bit. Yeah, when Richard brought up the well, he got a to call Russ's manager in order to talk to Russ. Even Marshawn had to say, "Yeah, that's true," mm-hmm. and and so I'm just wondering as somebody who's covered the team, like what. Yeah, outside, uh, like we we see in Denver is the the kind of rust bubble, and obviously everyone uh, hopes it it gets better. But we 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 saw maybe bits and pieces of uh, uh, talk over the course of the season about like his own office, and he doesn't eat with the other players and things like that. Like, what is the the perception of Russ a year removed from him being in Seattle? Well, I think you have to go back really, really far in order to get a true picture of what people thought about Russell in Seattle. Um, Some of you, I hopefully you guys know who Michael Robinson is. He was a fullback for Seattle, um, the Seahawks, and now he is a quite popular um, NFL, you know, reporter, uh, media personality. Back in Russell's original, his, his rookie year in 2012, he did a series with a video camera um, it was called the real um, the real Rob Report. You can go watch them all on YouTube. They are hilarious, right? But he's going around the locker room. He's doing practice. He's interviewing players. But there started a little thing that said Russ called Russ is not a robot. Now this is his rookie year, right? And so he's going in, and he they would make fun of him. Oh my God, he's just a robot. He's just a robot. He's just all business. And that's what we thought. We're like, he's all business. He's trying to prove himself. And then the next season, it kind of continued. But you kept hearing stories about how Russ was not real personable with his teammates, right? And so that just kind of continued to grow. And then, of course, the media grabbed it, that he was kind of awkward and strange, and he always had the right thing, and he was very PR-driven. All of those things are true. And as a Seattle Seahawks reporter and fan for my entire life, I was okay with it. We never got much drama out of Russ, and that was nice because there was a lot of drama that was going on in other places. But you never felt like you knew who he was, and you always felt that he was on, you know, always on show. He was always ready to go. What I think that bled over into the locker room then at that point was that he didn't feel genuine to the players. Now, I can say as a fan, I didn't feel that he didn't feel genuine. I just felt that he was all business. I was okay with it quarterbacks aren't my favorite thing in the world anyway I'm a much I'm a defense lover and so I was like whatever he's a quarterback and I didn't really think much of it but a lot of the fan base really gravitated toward him because he was a good guy and Russell Wilson 
is a really good guy. He does wonderful, wonderful things in the community. He loves his family. There's no drama. God love him for it. But with his players, he just never, the teammates, he never rang true to them. So as the things were going on, I think that, you know, as we were getting closer to this trade and we heard and then the trade went, you started to get some of that backlash that it was at a different level with his teammates than it was with the rest of the fans. Now, when you look at what happened in Denver this year, it was fascinating to us who were just watching the team. I've watched Denver for years. I knew the struggles that they had had, um, especially with the AFC West and the Kansas City Chiefs and all of that. And when I saw that Russell was coming in, I actually thought that was going to be fantastic for the team, much like the Broncos. But I had a conversation with a very good friend of mine who is a crazed Broncos fan here in Kansas City. So he struggles a little in this town. But... He said, he's like telling me all these great things. And I said, I need you to slow your roll because all of the things that everyone blamed Pete for nine times out of 10, if you watch it, it was on Russ. Russ is a fabulous, amazing, elite quarterback who makes really bad decisions sometimes. And so you can't just, just don't get too excited is what I kept warning him. Well, then halfway through the season, he called me. He's like, you were right. I should have listened to you. I said, I think it's two things. I think it's a new system for Russ, and I think it was a, a, a brand new head coach. You have to have a coach for Russell Wilson that is going to tell him when he has to do something, even if he doesn't want to hear it. And I don't know that Hackett had that in him. I think he let him run with it way too much. And so having Sean Payne come in, who I think, I think that they are going to butt heads and they are going to argue, and he is not going to put up with some of the things that Russell does. But I truly believe that he might be the coach that you need for him. And I think that's why it's going to be interesting, right? Because this year, having been chastened and having, you know, not not had, I, I can't imagine he wanted his time in Seattle to end the way it did, you know, um, it, it's kind of intriguing because Pay Sean Payton coming in with his background, like he, th this season is kind of a gimme for him. And given the Broncos fired Hackett out, they're not going to move off Sean Payton. So if 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 Russ doesn't perform this year, I think the Broncos will end up eating a whole load of cap. But ultimately, um, it, it it's uh, a decision they probably will have to make. So that's one to to keep an eye on. But if we move on then to to Russ's re replacement, and again, like it was it was interesting because Drew Locke went across and. Drew Locke, I mean, I don't know if if um, you're aware how divisive a figure he became in, in Denver. I mean, really, the feeling from a lot of the fan base was the team were kind of pushing him um, and pushing this narrative around him and that he he wasn't it. And then there was then it, it kind of created their own monster. And then when Vic, Vic Baggio and Teddy Bridgewater came in, and he decided to go with with Teddy. There was this kind of um, Drew Anon, I think is it might be the way I would describe it about all these truthers who once said, "Oh, Vic never gave Drew a chance," and mm -hmm. so so the last season just was bad in, in terms of the way it played out. He goes across, and all, you have people. I, th I saw it, even in the Seattle media, there were some people who really fell in love with Drew Lockett shook his hand at the end of the training camp battle and what what were what was your thoughts as as the training camp was going out on last year you know it, it was really fascinating 
I I live I live in Kansas City, Missouri. And for those so home of the Chiefs is where I am. So let me tell you how fun it's not to be a Chiefs fan here in this town. But it's also where Drew Locke, not too far from where Drew Locke went to college. So he is very popular here in Kansas City too. And so when Drew Locke was part of this trade, I had people cheer being like, oh, you're so lucky. He's so fantastic. We love Drew Locke. He never got a good shot in Denver. All the things that you just said, they said it here um, because of the Missouri fans that were here. Once he got to Seattle, I think most people kind of expected him to, you know, not really run away with it because we knew that Gino was solid, but probably edged Gino out in the end. Gino had been out of the starting position for a long time and Drew was younger. And they thought that Pete really liked him. I will tell you right now, I don't think Drew Locke ever had a chance. I think Pete Carroll knew it was going to be Geno Smith from the get. But Drew Locke became a very divisive figure in Seattle, too. They're like, you know, no, Drew is the best. It's still halfway through the season. Gino's having this fantastic season. People are like, you know, we should probably put Drew in, see how he does. No, <laughs> he doesn't need to do that. And I find that interesting that there's so many people behind him that are so supportive of him. And I'm not saying he's not a good quarterback. But he genuinely got beat out in Seattle, and he seemed to be okay with being the backup there, which was surprising to me. I thought we might get a little more angst out of him, but he seemed fine with it. Yeah, and it would be interesting to see, but I did see it was the same sort of kind of um, narrative last year. It was like, oh, um, Vic Vic Fangio's old, cranky, cantankerous guy, and Pete Carroll's statement, that's why they don't like Drew. He's a fun guy. He raps on the sideline. How could you not love him? And then Gino came in, and Gino, you know, I I think through, especially, to me, especially through the first half of the year, absolutely balled out, and still was solid. I think a little more up and down um, through the the back end, but Mm -hmm. pretty solid. Some of that down to some of the guys that went out um, through injury. But now the Seahawks have, find themselves, I suppose, in a little bit of a quandary. And that's what I, I'm interested in your take because Gino's contract is up and they have to figure this out. And what what would what would you do in, in this instance with Gino's contract in a world where we're seeing, you know, the the... Deshaun Watson get a fully guaranteed deal, but the Raiders, ha, you know, are moving on from Derek Carr because even though he signed a three-year deal notionally, really that was a one-year deal with a get-out clause for the Raiders. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it was. Um, so it, my opinion of this hasn't really changed since the end of the, actually even halfway through the season. It, it's been that you re-sign Gino, and that is that is just the logical answer to me. I don't think that Pete Carroll or John Snyder going into the season ever assumed that they wouldn't use whatever high number they picked that they got, which I think they assumed would be theirs, not Denver's, and to take a quarterback, right? That's just was the plan. We're going to use this guy, see how he does. And then Gino changed the entire script, right? And they changed that he flipped everything on them. And now it is completely illogical to me to spend a high pick on a quarterback when you have Geno sitting there, is Geno a Hall of Fame quarterback? No, he's not a franchise changing quarterback, but he is a good quarterback and he's going to get you wins throughout the season. We've seen it this year. I think when it comes to contract, though, because John Snyder said flat out that he would like he wants to sign him again. Geno says he wants to come back, but it's the number. And John Snyder was asked in an interview, you know, is there a top end? He said, absolutely. They have a drop dead number that they will not go over. 
What that is, we don't know, of course. But I have a feeling it's probably the mid to upper 30s a year is kind of what I'm seeing. There was a report that came out yesterday. Um, oh, stink. I should have um, I should have looked um, who it was before I came on. I'm sorry. But they said, oh, here is, you know, the the biggest free agents and what we think that they should get as a quarter as as a contract. And for Gino, they had one hundred and fifty million for four years and one hundred and twelve guaranteed. That is not in Seattle's world. And I think the nice thing about that is that they have the leverage of, well, you know, we don't have to keep you. We have this number five pick. And I think that that will help them in the negotiation. The other thing I think that will help them in the negotiation is the fact that I don't know that there's a lot of teams lined up for Gino, right? I don't think that there's going to be a ton of teams throwing a, a bunch of money at Gino. I could completely be wrong. But it just seems to me that you get to a contract that's, let's say, I say three years, much like that Derek Carr deal, three years where you can get out of it the third year pretty easily, have a good solid chunk of it being guaranteed and staying around between 30, 35 even would be totally fine with me. And I think it would be smart for Gino to take it. And it would be very smart if Seattle could keep him for that. Yeah, I think that the report, uh, I saw that as well, came out. Uh, I, it was PFF. Thank you. Said it. And yeah, I mean, that to me was interesting because we are, I, I suppose, you see the obviously the, the two GBs in the Super Bowl, but even, you know, zoom zoom out to the championship games. And it's a, you, you have the, the flexibility a lot of the time to, and, and look, the, the Niners are paying decent money, but not enormous money to Jimmy G. Um, but obviously then the two rookies aren't eating up much, but that gives you the flexibility to kind of do, to do what you want. So if you invest, like you, you can't overpay for great, but you can absolutely overpay for good. And I think that's sometimes the quandary. So I am intrigued to see ultimately what kind of contract it, it turns out to be for, for Gino and, and what that will mean for the Seahawks. I mean, Last year's draft class was incredible. I mean, a testament to um, to Pete and Schneider and the and the, the scouts there. And I'm wondering, like, look, I have my issues with Pete Carroll going back to USC, yeah, okay. kind of the, <laughs> what he did there and got out of Dodge and left other people to pick up the mess. But mm -hmm. the job he has done with the Seahawks, one can only admire. And given the way in which the league has kind of moved on from the way in which his defenses used to play, right? Well, mm -hmm. cover three is gone. It's the Vic Fangio too high system now. That's what kind of everyone is running, a variant of that. And then he, you know, he loses Ross in theory um, and he has a, a pretty young team. It, like, are, are we even underestimating the job? Because we talk about Gino and, and how impressive he was. Are we underestimating the job that Pete Carroll did in Seattle last year? Well, look out. If you say that out loud on Twitter, you'll get your head bitten off because there are two definite camps in Seattle fandom. Either you love Pete Carroll or you hate him. There is no middle ground. And I will tell you, I am the middle ground. I love Pete Carroll. I love what he's done. I love that he's stuck to his guns and what he believes in in his theory, because in his philosophies. Because when you see coaches that veer too far from their philosophies, it's usually a disaster. They really can only, you know, coach to what they truly believe. And I think we have seen Pete be able to return to that this year. 
And that is not, you know, any disrespect to Russell Wilson, but he was really pushing his will on that team, on what he wanted and what he needed. And you saw then the complete, you know, falling apart of the Seahawks defense because of it. It was so focused on Russ. And so I really feel like this last year, he got his mojo back, for a lack of a better term. And I think that's why we saw, you know, a little resurgence from him. And then you would see, to be quite honest with you, during the season, some of his press conferences, he looked tired and he looked confused and frustrated because the defense was so bad. But what I think was happening is that they were trying to change the defense's philosophy, modernize it a bit, change things up a little bit. He just didn't have the skill players to pull it off the way he wanted to. And I think that that was a huge part of it. So that then feeds back into my Geno conversation of you don't want to waste those higher picks on a quarterback. Now, that doesn't mean I don't want him to pick a quarterback at all. I would love one late second, third round. If there's somebody sitting there you like, pick them up. That's awesome. Whatever. But I really feel like all of those picks, those higher picks, have to be defense-focused, except for maybe the exception of a center, which I think is really important. But because Pete has shown that he can mold those players, look at Treat Woolen this year. Look at, you know, the entire rookie class, not even just the defensive side of it, but also the offensive side with Kenneth Walker and Derek Young and a bunch of these guys. And so I think that Pete is best with a young team because it what his raw rawness that drives some people crazy is very resonates very much with them coming from the college era and i think that hopefully he can get back focused on the defense but what he managed to pull off within one season i i don't think it can be ignored and i hope that the pete haters can at least acknowledge that and i suppose kind of looking around maybe the the rest of the the nfc west mm-hmm. um in terms of like where what do you, what are your thoughts on cuz it, it it's an interesting one. It, it was talked about as like the best uh, division in in football for a time, and then obviously the Rams kind of imploded last year. Uh, the the Cards are, are right now are, are still without a head coach. Kyler is is injured, and I, I'm in, I'm interested to see. It feels like their roster has some some bits and pieces but I, I don't know if it, it's truly set up and I think one of the older rosters and then you go to to the Niners who um you know again it was like Groundhog Day literally it was Groundhog Day yesterday but it was also Groundhog Day because we saw Kyle Shanahan um Ash and uh and John Lynch in front of the media saying yeah Jimmy's got to be moving on um and look I mean I I'm somebody who I I believe if you take a QB in the first round, I think play the the QB generally. I think people like this whole idea of sitting Aaron Rodgers kind of broke people's brains. Like QBs don't sit anymore, and and we've seen. I mean, you talk about Terry Woolett, like we see cornerbacks. I think change even the way they transition to the league, right? You think Sauce Gardner, you think Patrick Sertain, you think mm-hmm. Terry Woolett, like and cornerbacks. It's a bit the same, but I'm wondering in terms of like, I, I think. Obviously, given the surgery that Brock Purdy has to have, the the Niners are going to run it back now with Trey Lance, and I I think he deserves the opportunity. I mean, to me, that was kind of crazy last year, right? The kid comes in, and he plays in a monsoon against the Bears in his first real start. 
he's not outstanding, but I don't think anyone can be in those conditions. And then he gets injured and people are, are already kind of writing him off. Um, am I crazy for thinking that? No, you're not crazy at all. The, the NFC West was the best division in football for years. I mean, let's just admit that they were. They usually sent three teams to the playoffs. They were just so competitive within the division. It was It was so much fun to be in this division for so long. Obviously, this beginning last season, we assumed the Rams would run away with it. The Niners would be behind them. Arizona would, you know, do what Arizona does. And then Seattle would be down at the bottom with their four wins, right? Like, that's the assumption of what would happen. And that's not at all what happened. And I think that there's very specific reasons for each of those. San Francisco is probably one of the most talented teams in the league, hands down, especially on defense. The interesting thing is that they cannot keep their players healthy. And they have had this injury bug for years that has just completely stopped them in the playoffs. The interesting thing is they can still manage to get there, even with all these injuries, but they just can't quite get to the end. The interesting thing in their quarterbacks is that Trey Lance, we have no idea what he can do. I I think it's impossible to know. He absolutely deserves hopefully a full season for evaluation because they just haven't been able to do it. Brock Purdy was a fantastic surprise, right? Whether or not he would be able to continue that year after year, no one knows. That's how it works with rookies, especially then when they're injured. But what you said about Groundhog Day was so true. When they said that about Garoppolo, I even tweeted, I'm like, I'm having a lot of deja vu today because Tom Brady had also announced his retirement that day. It's like, feels just like last season. So there are not a lot of tweaks that San Francisco needs. They need to figure out what they're going to do for quarterback. They need to figure out this injury bug. They have some players who are going to be out of contract, but I think that they'll probably bring the majority of them back. And so I think that San Francisco is going to stay good. When you talk about L.A., though, when you get to that team, they mortgaged their future for their Super Bowl. That And that's they, they did it knowingly. They decided to kind of buck the trend of build the team through the draft and go for all of these free agents. Now, it has worked for a couple of teams over the last few years. They've gotten to the Super Bowl, won a Super Bowl, all of these. I mean, even the Eagles this year that are going into the Super Bowl, a lot of free agents, right? That is a philosophy that works. It just doesn't last. It's not a long-term situation. It's not, you're not going to get a Patriots dynasty out of it, right? And so what has happened in LA is time has caught up with them. And, And I'm not surprised that that happened. We thought it might actually happen last year. Matt Stafford, I did not think was the answer. He was fine last year. His stats weren't great, but he did good and they won a Super Bowl. But I think now they're going to have to really start to see they don't have any draft picks. So what can they do to get them? Are they going to have to start trading some of these bigger players? What are they going to have to do to try and rebuild this again? Especially with the question mark of whether or not Sean McVay is going to come back every year. Like every year, that seems to be a conversation. Arizona's a disaster. I don't know what... I think Cliff Kingsbury destroyed that franchise. I was not a fan of that hire. I didn't like him um, as a coach. I wasn't a fan of his in college. And I don't know that Kyler Murray is the quarterback they need. That's going to have to be something that the new head coaching and GM... I mean, they're revamping everything. They're going to start from scratch. And hopefully they'll be able to do that. It sounds like they're trading DeAndre Hopkins to try and get some more draft picks. But if Murray can't even start the season, I I think that they just are just going to have to take this year as an L and maybe, you know, try and build it for the next season. So I think it's going to take a couple years for Arizona and the Rams. But man, San Francisco, so much talent. 
Yeah, although it will be interesting to see what they do as defensive coordinator. Now, that might be Steve Wilkes, and I think there was a delicious irony to him coming in as interim a head coach in uh, Carolina. The fact that his, um, you know, he went through three QBs, his best player was traded away, and then Robbie Anderson forced his way out. And he still was able to win more games uh, than uh, Cliff Kingsbury this year, which uh, testament to, to him. I think the other thing um, is that even though the Eagles, you rightly point out, they, they, they've signed a lot of free agents, but they didn't give up picks for them. And right. they, they've been, Howie's been very smart around those contracts. So um, I think they, they, they are probably a team that might be a blueprint for others in terms of like I, this came up during the week and I've mentioned it on a couple of times, but I think it's worth emphasizing. So since the Broncos last won a Super Bowl, the Eagles had themselves won a Super Bowl. Then they've moved moved on from a head coach, moved, changed quarterback, and now they're back in the Super Bowl, which tells you, I think, a testament to the owner and the owner's willingness to trust Howie and, and kind of trust the, the process. And I suppose just um, kind of finally, um, Didix, I, I appreciate that the time you, you have given me, but you are there in uh, Kansas City. And look, we, we every... The Chiefs are just so dominant in the AFC West, and Mahomes is an amazing talent. It's kind of the perfect situation where this kind of unbelievable QB meets, meets this incredibly offensively gifted head coach. There have been some rumors online, nope, nothing substantial, but I'm just wondering have you heard it, then given that you're on the ground there, that if they were to win a Super Bowl, Andy Reid might ride off into to the sunset given everything that he's achieved. Have you heard any murmurings of, of such a thing? Not from anything, so not, not anything that's probably a legitimate source, but the conversation has been brought up because Eric Bieniemy all of a sudden is not getting head coaching looks. And he had been for so many years. And so the people are like, why has he been promised the Chiefs head coaching spot? You know, they they talk about that. But I will tell you that Andy Reid is it would be a sad day when Andy Reid retires. And and he is a fantastic coach. And, and I have loved what he's done here. Although, to our point earlier, he sat Patrick Mahomes for a year. He, he took him in the first round and then sat him for a year and it worked out beautifully. And I think that had more to do probably with Alex Smith than it did Patrick Mahomes. But it was very, very an interesting concept because I agree with you. You pick someone in the first round, you play them. That's I completely agree with that. What's interesting about being here in Kansas City is that they were so bad for so long. And then they managed to find this wonder kid and put these fantastic, you know, weapons around him and and always kind of bring along the defense so they're good enough. And now this year they're actually, you know, with Chris Jones and Frank Clark, they look so good. Um, the interesting thing is, once again, age kind of catches up to you. We have to remember Travis Kelsey's 33 years old, you know, and he's a tight end. And tight ends only usually play till 35, 36. So he's probably just got a couple years left. But Patrick Mahomes is 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 just kind of the wonderkin there. And as long as they can keep some consistent, you know, weapons around him, I think very likely that they will always be in the mix for this um probably with or without Andy Reid to be kind of honest with you yeah I'm I'm intrigued to see because I Mahomes you're right Mahomes is incredibly gifted but I just think Reid gives them such an edge like every single every single game every single game their first 15 or 20 plays because he scripts so well like they are unbelievable again against the the, the bang up like it's just 
And I mean, look, I, I'm just so used to getting beaten, my own team getting beaten by them. Um, I, I'm, I, I think Andy Reid deserves a statue in probably in Philly and probably uh, in uh, Kansas City. But um, Dana, I, I, I appreciate the time you, you've given. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. I've no doubt that listeners will as well. If, if you want to, to find more of your stuff, um, where can we do that? Um, so on Twitter, you can always find me at it's at Dana OG and it's D-A-Y-N-A-O-G. Um, and then our turf football is we do a podcast every Tuesday, including the entire off season. We don't take the off season off. Um, and so we do that every Tuesday live at um, 8 p.m. Eastern time, which I knew was a little late for people over by you guys, but you can watch it on YouTube at any point. Um, and then Real Hawk Talk. So if you have any Seahawks people out there. Real Hawk Talk is um, a very popular podcast that I'm lucky enough to be a contributor on. Um, they have some hot takes. We'll just put it that way, but they're really fun. Um, and then, of course, every other week I do End Zone Scoop with two gals from the UK. And we talk um, all about uh, football and um, we try to add a little education in there, too, for maybe people who are new to the sport. So. Excellent. Well, I definitely would recommend listeners checking out Dana's Twitter feed and her podcast. And all that remains, Dana, at this point is to say thank you very much once again for taking the time to chat to me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.